Welcome to the Wild and Well podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Hilary Clare, a clinical psychologist, holistic parenting mentor with a focus on nutrition and environmental medicine, a yogi, author, and mom of two wild boys. Here, we will delve into the big and the little things that move the needle for children's health and mental wellness in a modern world that doesn't always make it easy to do so. Together, we can nurture resilient kids, vibrant mothers, and a brighter future for the planet and the next generation. Let's get into it. In this episode today, I'm going to be talking to Jessica Lee. We are talking all about resilience, what this is, and how we can foster it in ourselves and in our children. Jessica is a well-being writer and educator. She is passionate about neuroscience-based strategies for building resilience, lowering stress, and increasing health, happiness, and creativity. Jess is also a regular contributing writer to Wellbeing Magazine, and her book, Wired to Thrive, will be available soon. I can't wait. This book is a practical guide to help people navigate change, build resilience, work smarter, prevent burnout, and live with purpose. So let's get into the episode. So welcome, Jess, to the podcast. It's great to have you here. I'm really excited to get into this topic of resilience and how we can foster this both in ourselves and in our kids. But before we begin, I would love for you to tell us one thing that you did today to take care of you and nourish you. Oh, good question. Thank you as well for having me on the podcast and excited for this conversation. Oh, for me, I took myself to my local cafe and was working on my book. And that is something I love to do. I have a beautiful little community up at the local cafe and great coffee. And whenever I write, I just get into that beautiful flow state and it always makes me so happy. So that was my thing today. Oh, that's incredible. I can completely <laughs> relate. Going to cafes and writing is one of my favorite things to do. So someday we'll have to do it together. Sounds good. <laughs> so you mentioned your book there. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do and what this book is about? Yeah, so I do a lot of different things. I, I'm a writer. I, I do write for magazines in sort of health wellness space with a interest in neuroscience and how we can change the way that we think and live to really spark our brain to be working at its best. I have a business called The Spark Effect and I work with female entrepreneurs to help them build their business and also work on their mindset as well. So, yeah, lots of writing and creating and strategic thinking and problem solving, all of those things are the things that I love the most. And, yeah, so my book that I'm currently writing is called Wired to Thrive. And it's looking at brain-based strategies to, to help us to live with more purpose, to manage stress, to master our mindset, to feel more energised, all of those wonderful things. Because when I was much younger, I went through, it was about seven years of chronic fatigue syndrome. And that's what sparked my interest in, in, our, in the brain and how what do we actually need to thrive? Because I clearly wasn't. <laughs> and so, yeah, that sort of kicked off a good decade or so worth of um of years of just being so fascinated by the brain and how we can change how our brain wires and fires to to really impact how we feel and how we experience our, our life and what we think is possible for our life and so after all these years of writing for magazines I'm finally putting it all together in a book to to help other people to to get those brain-based strategies so I'm very excited it's been a bucket list item for about 10 years now <laughs> So very, very cool. Sounds like good timing. Like I know it's been a decade and you've been wanting to do it for ages, but sometimes it takes time to learn so much information, right? And integrate the important bits to have that all concise in one book, right? Yes. Well, I, I realized I've been actually writing two. <laughs> so there is another book coming. But yes, yeah, it's um it has taken a while to learn it, to implement it, to think critically about the information and then really see what's the most crucial parts of that to share with people. Yeah, I can relate. I 
went to write one book and I have three. So yeah, I get it. It's hard to, <laughs> but that's part of the process, right? It just, yeah, absolutely. You've got to start. One. Yeah. You've got to start somewhere. <laughs> so today we're talking all about resilience. So before we get into, you know, the nitty gritty of that, just let's start with the basics. Like what is resilience? What is it to you? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. I, I think to me, resilience is that ability to not get stuck in the difficult times in life and actually having that toolkit to know how to change that. So, and obviously, you know, I think when we talk about resilience, people often have that concept of not just surviving, but thriving. And, you know, I think there's certain circumstances where we can thrive through difficult times, but even if it's not about thriving, it's just about not getting lost in it, just knowing how to keep moving forward and not getting stuck. Cause you know, I've definitely, seeing how easy that can be in, in my own life, dealing with chronic illness and seeing other people get stuck in the challenges that they're facing. So, you know, there's always going to be those challenging obstacles, adversity that we're going to face. So for me, resilience is actually knowing how to navigate those times to not get stuck, but then ideally being able to transform those experiences into something where you've learned, you've grown. You've got, you've sort of developed a part of yourself because of what you've been through. Yeah, I love that. And I think you're absolutely right with that. And sometimes our, we can thrive through them and other times it is about surviving, but it's about not staying stuck because it is so easy to stay stuck in that being a victim of your circumstance, whether it's a health issue or a job loss or a relationship difficulty and or motherhood, right? It can be really, really hard to, yeah. it can be really easy to get stuck and it can be hard to survive and to thrive and to learn from that and grow from that experience. Yeah, and absolutely. When I was um, struggling with postnatal depletion after the, my first son, I felt like I had lost all of my resilience. That was something that I would say to my husband. I'd say, I've just lost all my resilience. I just had I was getting overwhelmed easily. I was getting stressed easily. I felt ill-equipped to deal with just the most basic little challenges that popped up, which pop up when you're a new mother. And I found um, with like our modern world and how it operates, it makes it hard for mothers to be resilient and to thrive in that journey of becoming a mother. Why do you think motherhood is a time that so many of us find ourselves with little resilience left? Oh, I think there's so many reasons. And the work I've done in resilience, the, the, the first thing that I think is important in being able to rise to these difficult challenges is to be real. And I think that is such a challenge for mums because we're coming up against not just society's expectations of what a mum should look like and be like and how they should feel, but our own expectations of what we thought it would be like and what we thought we would be like as, as mums. And I think until we can be real with ourselves about how difficult we might be finding it or how frustrated we are or even disappointed or a whole bunch of other things or resentment that might be building because we're also not taught how to become a mum. You know, something I say to my husband all the time is like, when you're pregnant, it's just all about the mum. You know, are you eating right? Are you looking after yourself? And literally the second that you have the baby, it's just all about the baby. And there just is not enough focus on nurturing the mum after like a very physical process. Um, but the identity stuff is massive. Like literally in that moment, your whole identity shifts and you're now responsible 24-7 for a little person. And, and that's huge. And so if we can't begin to be real about you know the challenges and how we feel and the expectations and the demands and all that stuff I think it's very hard to move through to the next stages of resilience which are around problem solving about finding solutions to move forward and another part of being resilient is is having the energy to actually deal with challenges and I think we all would would know that you know that's being a mum and especially in that first newborn phase and especially when it's your first child you're just exhausted, like on just that whole other level. And so it's a huge ask to ask yourself and your brain to actually be firing on all cylinders to be able to navigate difficulties with ease and with great strategy <laughs> and, you know, with great patience and humour and all those things we want. 
it's just it's just a lot so I think that's why mothers struggle and you know and our brains are tired you know our prefrontal cortex that does all that thinking is certainly not you know firing like it would normally so um so many reasons so many reasons yeah I, I agree with all of those and there are just so many reasons it's very layered isn't it and it's no surprise yeah that so many moms do find themselves struggling during that time and we we want our kids to be resilient right but like most things we need to model it we need to embody resilience ourselves in order to truly know how to help our kids to be resilient so how do mothers and even parents in general strengthen their resilience what can we do yeah so I think you know, like I was saying before, the, the four steps that I see is the first about being real. So actually being honest with what's going on and actually being honest and saying this sucks, like this is hard. And sometimes that is about being honest with yourself because often we can try and think we're okay and our body is saying otherwise or our inability to make decisions is telling us there's a level of burnout. It can also be about having those difficult conversations with the people in your life to go, you know what, I'm actually just not coping here. So an example of, of that was when we had our, I think it was our second COVID lockdown, I found, so we keep we kept our son home from daycare in that time. So I was doing the full-time parenting while also running my business. And, you know, because these lockdowns happen so quickly, there's no chance to prepare and sort of create any buffers. And after the first lockdown, I was really exhausted by the end of that process with an active toddler at home and no parks and nothing to distract. It was hard and exhausting. And it was also wonderful at the same time. We'll get to that later. But the second time around, I thought, I know that this is going to be challenging again. And so I just said to my husband, like, I'm going to need more support than what I asked for last time. So that was the very beginning step for me was actually being real and having those difficult conversations and having the courage to ask for what you need. Because, again, coming back to motherhood, I think there is that expectation that we sometimes place on ourselves. We should just be able to do it all and to absorb everything that changes in our family's lives and uh, not realise that as we're absorbing, so does our needs. Our needs need to go up as well in order to actually do that. Um, and so, yeah, so the first part is about being real and then being able to re-navigate and actually look for what are the solutions in, in these situations. And so I said to my husband, right, um, Sunday mornings will be my time. I'm going to go in and do a, a Zoom meditation because that's what was on offer during COVID. And after that, I'm writing my book and in the afternoon we'll swap. You go in and do whatever you want. That's your time. So we each had half a day on the Sundays just to ourselves to lock the door and just be. And that was an incredible thing to, to help me be resilient because I knew what I needed. I spoke for what I needed and I have a very supportive husband, which obviously makes a huge difference. But just being able to know the solutions comes back to knowing yourself and what actually is going to restore you. And for me, meditation and writing both definitely help so yeah I think those are really important things as well but being mindful of your self-care like like you know you just if you're exhausted you can't be resilient and so making sure there's things in your daily life or your week that for you is going to restore that you know your wellness tank or your resilience tank is really important uh, whether it's walking or exercise or meditation or whatever, you know, it looks different for everybody. And then once we've done all of that, you know, being able to reframe because I believe that there's always opportunities within adversity and challenges. So like I said, you know, as hard as it was having my son home 24-7 during COVID, I could see that this was a really unique opportunity. He He's currently four and a half and it's such an incredible age, you know, he hasn't started school yet and life is just play and fun and, you know, all of that beautiful stuff. And I knew that this was actually a gift in a lot of ways as well. But I think until we can bring our emotion down, find solutions and feel empowered, it's very hard to get to that point of seeing the gratitude and the opportunities. But when you can get to that point, it makes it so much easier to be resilient when you can find the positives. It just helps to, I guess, widen that perspective 
that when we're going through difficult times, our brain often shuts down and it becomes very tunnel vision towards the challenge. So, yeah, so being real, navigating through solutions, reframing and re-energising are the four key things that I think are really crucial to stepping through to be resilient. Yeah. And I think it's so important, like you say, that there's those steps that you take and there's an order to that, because I think so often we go right to being grateful or even the problem solving around it without really feeling what we're feeling and feeling how hard it is and allowing that and letting other people know about it, who need to know about it, who can then help us. I think that's such a good starting point. And that's something that I lost touch with when I had my first child and I thought, yeah, I can do everything myself. And I pushed how I was feeling and my needs aside. So I didn't know, I kind of lost contact with that. So I didn't know like what to ask for, but second time around, I had that awareness of what I had gone through the first time. (laughs) And I knew that, yeah, I have to really allow myself to feel what I'm feeling and it's okay to have a hard time. Motherhood is beautiful and amazing, but it's also really hard and it can be both and allow myself to feel that and then know what my needs are and what support to ask for. Similar to what you did with COVID second time around, right? You can prepare yourself a little bit better having gone through that um, lockdown the first time. So yes, I love that. I think our society can be a bit focused on being happy and positive, but being real is such an integral first step. And then that allows you to then move towards the gratitude and the reframing, which are incredible as well, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think coming back to neuroscience, something that I am really fascinated is about that stress and anxious response in our brain. Because when we get to that place, which when we're trying to be resilient, we often are dealing with overwhelmed stress, anxiety, grief, a whole bunch of things, is that we are in that limbic part of our brain, the emotional survival part, which downregulates our prefrontal cortex, which is that problem-solving part. And so when you talk to someone who's in that position and you just jump straight into problem-solving, they can't hear you because their emotions are still driving their thinking and their response. And so I often talk about why we need to firstly downregulate emotion before we can find solutions. And it's all about just trying to switch the way that the brain is actually working. And I think when we can have this language and understanding about our brain, it also stops being personal. We're just like, okay, so this is what brains are designed to do, (laughs) but I can actually control this. And when we are real and we release, we're not just, you know, when we downregulate those emotions, we're creating that sense of spaciousness that just isn't there when we're stuck in all the emotion. And I think that's important because when I was a, a, a new mum, there was so many times the bathroom floor was always my place to, <laughs> to have my breakdown moment of tears, you know, thinking I just can't do this. How am I going to do this? And it was, you know, it was from that time I realised we often have to unravel before we can rise up again. And when I cried and had all the thoughts and whatever I was going through, it was like this sigh. It's like, oh, okay, I've released that. And then there was this spaciousness and this voice in my head that would say, okay, Jess, you can do this. But without that moment on the bathroom floor, <laughs> you just, I just never got there. You know, I needed to have that release. And it's just all the chemical stuff that's happening in our brain as well. And so I think it is important for people to understand some of the, the neuro stuff that goes on for us when we're trying to be resilient. So we're not fighting against our brain. We can actually work towards it work with it, I should say. (laughs) Yeah. And it's very similar to with our kids. If our kids are having really heightened emotions and they're emotionally dysregulated or having a meltdown or whatever you word you use to describe that we can't get in there and be rational with them and use that rational part of our brain, right? We have to allow them to have that emotional experience and be there with them in it. And then they can process it, let it go. And then they can come to that calmer place where the prefrontal cortex has like switched back on and they can 
talk about, okay, well, what happened there and what can we do now? Or what can we do next time and problem solve? And we're not that different as adults, right? But I think we often, (laughs) we forget that. And we expect ourselves to move through that a lot more quickly. And I think a lot of the time we expect our kids to as well. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it is so important to understand this is just how our brains work. And if we just work with our brains, it can be so much easier and we can experience things to such a better level, right? Mm, Yeah, yeah. And getting that sequence right of dealing, letting that emotion be there first is so crucial. And you're so right about about children, you know, and and I think we do forget, forget that. You know, and when my son's having sort of a meltdown, I often think, you know, he just literally can't hear you right now. And I think they literally can't <laughs> until, you know, that that has been released and processed to some degree. So, yeah. Yeah. And you talk about having this solutions mindset. So tell me a little bit more about that and how we can use this in our lives on a day-to-day level. Yeah, so like I was saying before, you know, when we're in that sort of hyper-stressed and anxious place, you know, because our brain's wired to survive, it does focus on the problems and the, and the challenges and it can be a little bit tricky to find those solutions. But like we were saying, if we can calm it down, bring that prefrontal cortex back on, we can look at things critically. And so for me, when I was uh, sick actually with chronic fatigue syndrome, I came across a quote by a tennis star, Arthur Ashe, you may have heard this one before, but he says, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And that was, that quote, like it's become my life mantra and it has helped me so much because when I was really chronically sick, I was in bed a lot. I couldn't stand up long enough to have a shower. It wasn't working, a whole bunch of things. Like my life had really been paired back to very, very basics. And I felt like I couldn't do anything. You know, I was really focused on all the things I'd lost and my limitations, which was keeping me stuck, Right. When we talk about resilience, about not being stuck. And when I saw that quote, and I don't even know where I read it, I thought, well, well, what can I do with what I've got, with where I'm at? And that's actually what started me writing as a freelance writer in health and wellness because I could do that from my bed. And I was already reading what I could to try and understand what was going on for me. And so, um, and actually reading another book, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, I don't know if you've read that book or seen the movie, but this young guy has a stroke and he ends up with locked-in syndrome where his brain is working but nothing in his body works except the ability to blink his eyes. And he comes up with this system with his carers where he blinks based on the letter of the alphabet that he wants to communicate and he writes a book like that. And when I read that, when I was going through my sickness, I thought, oh, my goodness, I have so much capacity, Right. Can I compare my life to this man's life? So it was such a stark reminder to me that wherever we are, whatever challenge we're facing, there's always something that we can do, some small action that we can take. And often it comes back to letting our values actually guide that so that we can ensure that we're moving in the right direction. And, and, and my values was about learning and helping people. It had always been that way. So it made sense to me to learn about health, wellness and all of that stuff and write about it to help others who are going through something similar. So I think, you know, when we talk about solution mindset is is actually taking stock of what are the skills you have? What are the connections? What's your support network? Who can you talk to? Who can support you? What past experiences have you been through where you could draw from the strength that you showed or the way that you solved a problem? is just really getting clear on what the small steps are. Because when we have any type of solution, it makes us feel empowered. And that's so important because often in resilience, we feel like life has happened to us. And sometimes it has. Sometimes stuff just happens. It's totally out of our control. But to bring back that sense of control, we can see that if I take this step, it's going to help me move forward. I think that makes a really big difference. It doesn't have to be a big step. You know, it could be something as simple as, you know, like I said, I'm going to sign up to a meditation class via Zoom during COVID lockdown. Not a huge thing. Went for 40 minutes once a week, but it helps me so much. So finding what your next step. Yes. Yes. I work with clients and we focus on taking those like micro actions, those tiny, tiny steps. And often they suggest something to 
like one thing to do, a step to take towards a habit. And I often help them to make it even smaller to just start with a very, very, very small one, like one minute of meditation rather than 20, because 20 seems doable, but then you start going through a <laughs> day and your brain starts making up all these excuses to not do 20 minutes. So one minute is a lot more likely. So I do. Um, I, yeah, I really agree with what you're saying. Can you repeat that quote? That was beautiful. Yeah. So start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. What a great like mantra to have to take you oh. through life. Yeah. And, and it does, you know, and I teach my clients that too, because that looks different for everybody and it looks different for us as well, based on where you're at in life you know, and sometimes our capacity is massive and incredible and other times it's not. It's limited to super small steps. And I also think with resilience, self-compassion is hugely important. You know, we were talking, you and I were both saying, you know, when you had your second child, you sort of knew what to ask for and what to do. Same with me with the second COVID lockdown. And I think it's easy to sort of sometimes be a little bit critical of ourselves that we didn't do it better the first time or we didn't know what to ask for. But, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And part of life is is about about learning. And I think the more we can be in tune with our body and and be investing in those sort of self-awareness type activities like journaling and meditation, quiet time, being in nature, it does help, you know, but I think we're all doing our best <laughs> and to, to cut ourselves some slack, which I think does ironically help us be more resilient too. <laughs> what is one of your favorite ways to bring that self-compassion into your daily life? Oh, I think one of my favorite strategies around self-compassion is to always, when I know I'm being critical of myself or my expectations are too high, is I imagine if my best friend was saying it and I know you know a lot of people talk about that strategy but to yeah just to think well if someone a friend came to me and said what I'm saying to myself what would I say and then I just follow that you know because I know that when I talk to my best friends I always want the best for them I want them to be kind to themselves and I you know want them to succeed and so I just yeah I really try and tap into that sort of inner wisdom, I guess, that's there and not get caught up in that harsh inner critic that, that can be very loud at times. Yeah, I do a similar thing. I I think about how I, I would talk to a child, whether it's my child or like a version of me when I was younger. So I can picture mm. either myself, yeah, when I was five years old or my kid and think about how I would respond to them if they were struggling with something like that. And it does really change how you respond to yourself. And it does remind you how harsh you are being with yourself and that mm. you don't have to follow that voice. You can notice it, think it and choose a different path that is a little bit more compassionate. Yeah. And often, often that, that voice of compassion is far more effective in achieving the outcome you're actually trying to go after. <laughs> That's what I found anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I find that with clients, they don't necessarily buy into what you're saying there, but with experience, we people do, that we think that we have to push ourselves and motivate ourselves from this harsh place. But actually, if we are kinder and more compassionate towards ourselves, we're going to move a lot more easily in the direction we're going and achieve what we want a lot more easily. Yeah, and look, I think, you know, again, if we talk about some of the neuroscience stuff, it does, I can see why people are resistant to that concept. But when you think about when our brain feels calmer, it actually works a lot better. But when you're being harsh with yourself, you're totally upping your stress levels. You know, you're also visualising, you know, something that's not great, which also increases your stress, where when you have that, that conversation with yourself that's compassionate, it helps you to stay calm gives you confidence that you've got it, you know, it gives you a visualisation of, of a, a nicer way to actually go about this. So all of that stuff primes our brain to work better than if we're putting it under stress and pressure and anxiety. So I think there's a real science basis for why self-compassion also actually works and is effective, even if we logically think it's not. It's not how we're raised to talk to ourselves, really. If you look at how society is, it's always about you know, pushing yourself, pushing the limits, no excuses mindset for goal setting, all that stuff. 
you know, which is hugely problematic, but that's for another conversation. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. So we, we come from, there's a lot of unlearning that has to be done, but you're absolutely right. The research and the science is in support of self-compassion. So it's, it's, a, it's a better option in my mind. So you mentioned um, visualization and you talk about using some future visualization. And this is something I love doing myself and with my clients, I find it can be really helpful to get clear on what kind of future is going to help you thrive and what sort of person you want to be and what your life looks like when you're thriving and then start using that future visualization to inform the decisions you make in the present and make those decisions based on that perspective of that future you that is thriving and doing well. So tell me a little bit about why visualizing the future is something that is important to do and how best to do it. Yeah, so I think, again, sometimes we visualise a negative, stressful future and not always aware that we're doing it. I definitely am one of those people. I I sort of have to pull myself back from worst-case scenarios, but I know not everybody's like that. I've had conversations with people who are always in the best-case scenario and struggle to think of worst-case, but <laughs> that's certainly not been my, my reality. Um, and so I think that, you know, in the, in the context of resilience is even becoming aware of what is that movie running through your brain about what the future looks like because there's a good chance that it's not positive, that it's full of worst-case scenarios. And, again, when we visualise, the brain doesn't differentiate between visualisation and something actually happening. Interestingly, a lot of the same pathways light up, which is, you know, why athletes use visualisation to prime their body and their brain for these future performances. They've been doing it for years, but we can sort of uh, jump on that bandwagon and actually use it too, is to firstly just be aware, like, what what is the scenario that's going through your mind and how could you intervene and actually rewrite that story and rewrite that script? And I like what you say about, you know, what does the future you look like? And I know you do beautiful work in that space and in your book to really help mothers get clear on what that looks like. And I think once you've got that clarity, you can create a bit of a script or a visualisation that you can come to back to each day and listen to and focus on because that's, you know, what we focus on often grows in our life. We will, in the times that we want to feel patient, we'll notice ourselves being patient in the day because we've primed our brain to look out for those things. So I think repetition is obviously a really important part of, of visualisation. Um, and, yeah, just coming back to that as often as possible. I quite like to record myself saying that future visualisation on my phone and just listen back is something sort of awkward at first when you hear your own voice. But then, yeah, it's, it's quite a powerful thing to do or even just to write it out on your phone and just to read it and just be really focusing on what it is you want rather than what you don't want. Cause I think we spend a lot of time focusing on what we don't want. <laughs> and when you do that, whether you're writing it out or speaking it out, do you write it in the, like, I want this way, or do you write it? I am living this way. Like what's, what do you find is better? And is there any research behind that or? I sometimes even use you so that I'm listening to myself, talking to myself as you, not I. But the research actually suggests that I is more powerful. So, but I'm not entirely sure why that is. And I think that when we come to these sorts of strategies, you just try and see what works for you. Yeah, it's just that future pacing. So, you know, I, I was taught visualisation very early on in primary school when I started public speaking. And I had a wonderful public speaking teacher and she said, while you're sitting there in the, in the audience before you get up to do your speech, your brain will be worrying about dropping your, you know, cards or, you know, forgetting what you're going to say, all those worst cases. She said, I want you to sit there and visualise yourself standing up confidently, looking great, walking out, delivering a great speech, getting a round of applause, sitting down. And so she said, focus on that over and over when you're sitting in the audience. And so I was, you know, probably about 13 when I was introduced to this concept and it really made a difference, you know. And so I think 
yeah, just even trying to visualise yourself really in those situations, not just the words, but how does it feel? So, yeah. Yeah, connecting to the emotion in that situation just amplifies how powerful visualisation is. And I think you're right. It's about really being in it rather than speaking about the future, but being in that space when you're visualizing it. And so you're very lucky that you had a teacher like that when you were 13. (laughs) I think we all would do a lot better if we had some of that training early on. And that brings me to my next question about kids and resilience, because I think, unfortunately, our world is set up in a way that doesn't make it easy on our kids. They're compared to others, like right from the beginning of their lives, the expectations we have on them of how they sleep, how they eat, um, when they read, even like how they process and deal with their emotions. We hold them to the standard that most adults like, can't even live up to. And it's just not helpful. And they even have like chronic disease and mental health issues. These are just becoming really, really common that they're seen as just kind of the norm now. So our kids are struggling. They need more resilience. But saying this, like, what can we do to help support our kids to be resilient? We did talk about how we can become more resilient ourselves and do these things. So modeling it is so, so useful. But what else can we do? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things. I, I, I think there's a bit of an issue with the way that sort of we've gone down that path that everyone wins a prize type of philosophy with with children everyone's invited nobody misses out and from a mother heart I totally get it you just never want to see your kid not do well or not be invited and all of that stuff I totally get it but I do worry a little bit that you know we aren't creating environments where our kids have to learn that sometimes you do miss out sometimes you don't get what you want everything is so quick like so you know when I was a kid we had cartoons once a once a week in the mornings on a Saturday morning and now my son can log on to ABC iView and watch any of his shows back to back whenever he wants <laughs> and so there's this real instant gratification society that worries me a little bit because I just don't think that we've sort of got those things in place for our kids to know how to manage those difficult emotions they're not practicing how to do that they're not also learning that your identity isn't connected to some of these things. It's okay if you're not invited to that party. It's okay if you miss out this time. There's other times. And I think that the work of uh, Dr. Carol Dweck on growth mindset and fixed mindset is something that I really value. And it's something that I've been teaching my son since he was quite little because he'll often, like all kids, you know, sort of want to give up when something gets a little bit tough. And I say, you know, you can do hard things. You can do hard things. And we do a puzzle and he's like, oh, but I didn't get it the right piece every time. I said, you're not meant to, you know, a puzzle. You're meant to get the pieces wrong all the time and you it's a journey to actually work it out. And so for me, building resilience is actually sometimes even fostering a bit of failure, like making something hard so that they have to see and manage some of those emotions that, that pop up, um, but also knowing that, you know, we can try again that it's not, you know, our ability to learn and grow is not fixed. So that's really important as well. Uh, Gratitude, something that we do most nights at our dinner table is to go around and ask each other what was the best part of your day to really, again, prime the brain to be focused on the good things and not always the the challenging things. So, um, and also just as a parent, like being clear when you've stuffed up you know and and being honest about that you know that um we don't always get things right and that that's okay and that moves into I guess that self-compassion I think for our kids to be resilient there's lots of different skills that they need to learn and I just don't know how much they're getting that in our current culture at the moment I'd love your thoughts on that (laughs) yeah I was just nodding along to everything you're saying there that I think, yeah, the way that we're raising our kids in society now isn't necessarily setting them up to be resilient. So I think allowing them to make mistakes and allow them to understand that that's normal is that's so important. Like you were saying with the puzzle, not getting it right. 
every time you pick up a puzzle piece. And us modeling that, that we make mistakes is incredibly important for so they know that they don't have to be perfect and we're not perfect. Nobody is so, so important. We do gratitude as well. We, most nights we practice that and my youngest is three and we've been doing it for probably a year or more. And I don't know, he's catching on now, but I think it was just a habit that we wanted to build as he grows and his brain develops and has the capacity to understand what gratitude is. We're just starting that as a habit now. And I'm hoping over time that's going to grow into something that really does help him and help both my kids to recognize that there are good things happening in their day, even if they are having struggles. So yeah, I absolutely agree with everything that you're saying there. And I think it's just as parents allowing those mistakes, allowing failures, allowing ourselves to make those mistakes and just being there for our kids in that capacity when they are having those struggles with that and not trying to fix things for them, but allow them to develop that frustration tolerance. I think that's something with the instant gratification and everybody wins and everybody's included way our culture is right now is they don't develop that frustration tolerance. And I think that's so, so important. So allowing our kids to be annoyed or be frustrated and not immediately step in and try to fix things or do it for them, but allow them to feel that emotion and process it and try again. Or if we do step in, we can step in and try to do it and fumble as well and then get frustrated and then show, oh, I'm frustrated. This is hard and try again and try again, and then eventually get it. So we actually model that behavior that we want in them. It's not a one-time fix, is it? It's a lot of different things that we do over time. Absolutely. And I think even building that self-awareness is from an early age of having them understand what emotions they're feeling. You know, it's something that I work on. I have no doubt you do that with your kids too, is just helping them to even label their emotions and getting clear between the difference of frustration and anger you know they're not the same and helping them to have that language because if we go back to what we were talking about that in order to be resilient we often need to ask for what we need in order to do that we need to understand what's even going on and you know um we're raising boys and i don't think men have been nurtured in that space traditionally to understand their internal space very well um, and so I think as a, as a mother of a son, I am quite aware of wanting him to understand himself and to, and to use that to be resilient, to use that to be kind, to use that to achieve the things he wants to. So I think that's also really a really important part of resilience. Yeah, I can't agree more. I, I did my PhD in emotional awareness, so I am a bit biased when it comes to it, but I know the research <laughs> and it is so important for doing well in all, all aspects of life and health and relationships. So it's so important. And it, and it is one of those foundational skills that if we have that things are just easier. So if we understand our emotions, we have that self-awareness. Yeah. Then we can then look at those emotions and ask ourselves, well, what needs do we have? What needs is this emotion connected to? And then we have the capacity to ask, right? But if we don't, if we're not even aware of what we're feeling, how do you move forward? Yeah, and you don't. And that's, you know, why you get stuck or you end up dealing with those emotions in, in not an effective or healthy way, you know. So absolutely. And that's why for me the first step is real, is, is to be real and honest because you, I don't think you can really move very far. Um, so, yeah, and then you do. You stay stuck. Yeah. Yeah. So based on what we've been talking about here with resilience for ourselves, for our kids, what is one simple shift that we can all make today to start strengthening our resilience? Intentionally having time just to check in with yourself. Because when I look at my own experiences, sometimes if I've gotten too busy in life and all the rest of it, I've probably gotten too far down the path of feeling stressed and overwhelmed and anxious. And it's harder to get out of that hole when you're in deeper. (laughs) So when we can build that body awareness early, 
to say, oh, I'm actually struggling a little bit, therefore what do I need to put in place? The sooner we can do that, the easier and quicker it is to actually navigate it. So I personally find that if I don't have those moments in my day, I quite I like to start the day with a quick sort of meditation or a walk around the block or whatever it is, just to sort of check in and like, how am I feeling today? Is life okay? What's what's going on? Is is anything not working? What could I do? So just having that little check-in with with yourself, I think, is is a great habit to to get into. Yeah, that's great. I do an emotional check-in at 2.13 every day. I just randomly put it in my phone once. It's just a really <laughs> nice yeah, it's a nice habit <laughs> to have. Um, to just yeah, check in. And I find it's something useful to do in the morning. I really do like that. But also as our day goes and it is mid-afternoon you kind of can lose that self-awareness and you get caught up in your to-do list. So it is a nice time to, to have another little quick, like, Oh, okay. How am I feeling? What's happening? And then you can go forward from there. So. Mm, I like that. I'm going to try that. Cause I think you're right about that around that time of the day, you start to get stressed. You haven't finished all the things. <laughs> um, yeah. And often we, we carry emotions through the day without realizing, you know, that you're frustrated about something or something like that. And then if you've got that afternoon check-in, there's chance to actually potentially solve it, fix it, or, you know, take some steps to, to manage it. I really like that. I like mm. that a lot. Yeah. Especially if people have like kids at daycare or school, it gives you that time to decide what to do with what you're feeling before you then bring that into your evening with your kids and with your family. Mm, that's so good so powerful so your book isn't quite out yet but it's going to be out soon (laughs) so besides your book what book or resource would you recommend if listeners want to learn more about resilience and how the brain works in terms of this or just a topic similar to this Oh, that's a hard question to ask a self-confessed nerd. One book. <laughs> it doesn't um, have to be I'd just one. To, <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to send you some links for your for your audience to go check them out. But um, when it comes to resilience, I really love Brené Brown's work across a lot of her her books because of of her stuff on vulnerability and she's just brilliant and she speaks from the heart, but she's so smart too. So she, you know, I love, I love her work. And in terms of brain stuff, you know, there's uh, some of my favorites are rewire your brain by Dr. John Arden. Um, Dr. Wendy Suzuki has a great book. I think it's healthy brain, happy life, but I'll send you some links, but yeah, there's some, some definite neuroscientists who write, in a way that is accessible. Um, that's how I got got started, just to yeah, to just understand some some of those those basics. Uh, I think when it comes to those habits, you've got James Clear, Atomic Habits. He's done a great book around that. But there's a few other books that, are, that talk about tiny habits and micro habits, which I've really loved as well. So I'll definitely send through a list of, of some of my my top books, which have have changed my life. Um, Man's Search for Meaning by Dr. Viktor Frankl, not about uh, the brain really, but a book that definitely changed my world when I was, I studied his work when I was writing a thesis on hope at university, but his work is incredible as well. So we're, we're so blessed with so many incredible minds out there. Yeah, it is hard to pick. Those are all really good suggestions. And I'd love to see that list because I know you're an avid reader in this area. So please send it through. <laughs> Do you have any final words of wisdom that you'd like to share with us? I think when it comes to resilience, for me, it's just going back to that mantra again of of what I was sharing with Arthur Ashe is just to to always know that there's something that you can do to improve the situation that you're in. And I, I love reading about people's lives, people who've gone through really difficult situations and, you know, they always find something to take action on and often it's also about creating meaning and purpose out of those difficult times and I know for me my, my book that's coming out wide to thrive that's also about taking an adversity you know it took me seven years to recover my life after getting sick and 
I want that to be a meaningful experience in my life and for others. So I think for people who are going through difficult times, I think it's powerful to find purpose and meaning in the challenge, in the adversity and struggle, so you can be resilient, but so you can also contribute to the world in a meaningful way. So I think that's another important part of of resilience and the story of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you, Jess, for coming on here and talking about this and sharing your wisdom on resiliency and everything around that. Is there a way that we can, me and the listeners can say thank you and appreciate you? Is there anything we can do for you? <laughs> yeah, well, I'd love your listeners to, to um, jump on the wait list for my book, which will be on the sparkeffect.com.au which is my email and I'm sure the link will be there for them where they can, you know, read my blogs and articles that I've, I've published in this space. And yeah, just, just be part of that, that community. And I'll send you through my links to Instagram and Facebook. Cause I, I love speaking to, to people about the work I do and, and how it, how it impacts their life as well. Yeah. We'll definitely have all that in the show notes and on social media. Are you at the spark effect? Yes. That's great. It's nice to be consistent and simple across (laughs) everything. Well, thank you so much, Jess, for coming on and talking about this. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Wild and Well podcast. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode and please share with like-minded mothers. A review wherever you listen to your podcast is greatly appreciated as it helps to get the show to even more mothers and families. Together we can nurture thriving kids, vibrant moms, and a brighter future for the next generation. Disclaimer, the information in this podcast is intended as educational in nature and is for informational purposes only. It is not personal health advice or indicative of a therapeutic relationship, and it should not be used to prevent, diagnose, or treat health problems. If any of the information in this podcast resonates with you, consult a qualified healthcare practitioner to discuss what works best for you in your unique situation.